0: I think the beautiful thing I loved about it was there was high enough trust and high enough respect that you didn't need to do the normal hand waving. That was great, I was so changed. You Because by the time we were speaking, the second service had already started. You could hear them, the musical worship had begun. And so we would huddle in the corner um, of the lobby and the feedback could be anything, but the goal was how do I help my colleague deliver God's word as clearly and as powerfully as possible to serve the congregation.
1: Hi, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast, episode 160. I'm your host, Mike Neglia, and the voice that you just heard is Mr. Greg Howe. And this conversation is just just so good. Uh, Titling this episode was actually a little bit of a challenge because there are so many highlights in this conversation. Just pure gold. So, in this conversation, uh, you're going to hear about Greg's experience on the preaching team at New Life Fellowship in New York and, and the value of like collaborative preaching or especially um, collaborative or peer-reviewed sermon feedback. And the way that everybody wins when our sermons are critiqued and we're ready and able to humbly receive feedback. Also, uh, Greg has stuff in here about the importance of clarity, both in our thinking and in our communication. And there's some wonderful advice about inviting people into beginning their discipleship journey with Jesus. How do we call people to faith in Christ in ways in which they can respond. So, like I said, so much gold in this interview and I'm really excited for you to be able to listen to it. All right, I hope that this episode and all that we do with the expositors collective help you to grow in your personal study and your public proclamation of God's word. Okay. Hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast. I'm here with uh, Greg Howe. Um, good morning. Uh, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having me on. Uh, man, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to talk to you. Um, I think that you have a, a lot to offer and um, I have one specific thing to focus on in our conversation, but there's probably going to be a lot of really meaningful and significant uh, rabbit trails in this. So let's go. Let's get ready for this. Fantastic um so so greg um you you are not like primarily or vocationally a preacher but yet you've you've preached a lot um throughout your life is that correct that's true um a lot of my
0: work has been in campus ministry with intervarsity christian fellowship but in that context i probably when i was on campus would speak at a church or at a conference or a student group 30 to 40 times a year so it was much like being a pastor in terms of uh, preaching regularly, but it wasn't the primary thing that I was working on.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, there's there's some people that are full-time that preach about 40 times a year. So, uh, yeah, forgive me for that oversimplification. No, not at all. But oftentimes, it's they you're talking to different people um, each of those um, Sundays? Yes. Uh,
0: so, it could be different churches. It could be different student groups. So, uh, there's a little advantage of being able to say, oh, I have a talk that would normally work in this context— but then making sure I have enough knowledge of the specific group I'm speaking to to figure out how does the application need to shift even if the core exegetical work hasn't shifted. Okay,
1: oh, that's, that's, that's stellar. Well, would you mind, could you like bring us into your story? Could you tell us about the very first time that you ever like preached a sermon or taught a Bible study in public? Oh, the first time I preached was probably a, as a sophomore
0: in college. I was at a inter month-long program and part of what we did for about three weeks was study the gospel. The, sorry, the, the letter to Titus. It was about leadership, and so we were, had focused on that. And at the end of that month, we'd had three weeks of different expositors coming in. And the fourth week, they said, we're going to ask the students to do the preaching. And so we took the text of Titus that we had studied together. And each of us was given a different section. And in small groups, we preached, uh, exposited a small section of Titus, and then we received feedback from the group. And so my first text was Titus 1, 1 through 3, and I remember spending hours trying to unpack it more and figure out how do you communicate this very abstract thing about how the Gospels worked across time in a way that might be relevant to my fellow college students, and then had to sit there afterwards as that small group. Uh, then provided uh, both encouragement and critique on how I should preach, could have preached that differently.
1: Wow, wow, wow! That's that sounds really great. What a what a wonderful opportunity um, that they've given you. I'm sure it stressed you out, but what a what a safe place to kind of begin your preaching, ministry, vocation, career.
0: <laughs> it, it really was, and what I loved was what they told students at that conference. But there were about eighty to hundred of us. If you're going to speak, speak from the scriptures do an exposition. We don't need your best thoughts on prayer. We would much rather have you teach from Daniel 9 or Nehemiah chapter 1 or any of the great prayers in scripture, but at least allow the God's word to be your authority and um, to constrain your content, but that will actually be a blessing to the people who are there. So it was a fantastic experience. And then to receive critique immediately afterwards, I think um, was humbling. And what a gift that the very first time I preached, people were like, here's how we think you could do that better. That was excellent.
1: Yeah. How, uh, what was the critique? Do you remember? Um, you know, it, it was so long ago, it was in the mid 80s, but I,
0: I think they were, um, one of the things that was useful to note is before they, we were allowed to critique each other, we had to share, how did God speak to us? in the sermon that we heard so that the first thing was for us as critiquers to be attentive to what the Holy spirit was doing in us before we started critiquing. Um, I think it was things like you speak too quickly. Um, the application's a little abstract. Could you make it more concrete, especially given how abstract the opening lines of Titus are? Um, and I think that may have been the, um, that may have been, it It, it was a 15 minute, sermon, right? So it was quite short, but those were probably the main critiques and have probably been
1: the consistent critiques over time. (laughs) I I was just going to ask. Yeah. So have (laughs) you have you slowed down in your speaking and is your application more concrete now? I don't know that I've spoke slowed down in my presentation,
0: but I hope my application is more concrete. Um, I was very much helped by a critique I got several years later by a much a wiser and more experienced exposure who came alongside me and said that was fantastic, but your application was so abstract. I'm a, if people are familiar with Myers Briggs, I'm an INTJ, so I live at the level of ideas, concepts, and imagination. And he said, imagine the specific people there and choose one or two, and say for Joe right there in row three, what would the, how would this be relevant to him, and think about Maria in row seven to the right, uh, w- what why is this good news? Or where's the challenge from God in this? And I think by being trying to be attentive to the specific people in the congregation, I can't speak to everybody, but if I can ground it in one or two different people, that helps. Or when I was preaching frequently at the church, I was at a New York City, I had seven or eight people I kept in my mind as I was finalizing the text, particularly the application to say, is this relevant for this person who's struggling with homelessness? as well as the Wall Street banker who is four rows away, how about the person um, who feels uh, like a a minority, whether through ethnicity, sexual orientation, or another issue that they may be wrestling with at the church, to um, the high schooler who's in the pew. And if I could keep all four of those folk in my head at the same time and say, where is this good news? That helped keep me a little bit more grounded in what was happening.
1: Yeah, I, um, perhaps you're familiar with uh, Brian Chappell's book, Christ-Centered mm. Preaching. Yeah. Um, he, yeah, he recommends that yeah, in our studies <clears> that we have like, you know, three or four um, chairs with, with mm. people in them, you know, not, not real people, but, but those people that you even just mentioned, the, the executive and, the, you know, all those people. But they're kind of, they pull up a seat next to your desk and that you kind of glance at them and think through application through the grid of their own lives. Yes, Yes. And
0: and I was strongly influenced by, it was John Stott's book, um, Between Two Worlds, which was, I believe, in preaching in the UK uh, and has now been re-released by Erdman's in a different title. But he used to take, when he would plan a series, invite... A group of people from London, usually young professionals, and just walk through what he'd been thinking, the external reading he'd been doing, and how he was thinking about Scripture, and just receive feedback even before he would come to the text. Well, not before he'd come to the text; before he'd begin to write the sermon out as a way of making sure: did this resonate with the people in the parish? Did this um, hit? So it wasn't just people in the parish, but do, would experts in the field say, "Yes, you've accurately summed up the issues." And I was so struck by that as a beginning preacher that this world famous Bible expositor took the time to do the research, to understand his context.
1: Yeah. So Brian Chapel says, do a thought experiment. And John Stott's like, wait a second, <laughs> let's, let's make this real life. I'm a pastor. I can call my congregants into my study. <laughs> That's ah, well, I'd love to, like you, you mentioned that, you know, that your time preaching in that church in New York, and then also the ways that, um, you've received a little bit of feedback. Now, can I kind of ask for you to tell us more about, um, about that church and the feedback that you were involved in or that you gave and or received while you were there? Sure,
0: I loved the experience I had. This was New Life Fellowship in Queens. Um, the founding pastor is Pete Scazzaro, who wrote a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality that has become quite well-known. Pete was transitioning out of the lead pastoral, had invited Rich Volotis, a younger, and Rich at that point was probably his early 30s, Um, Puerto Rican uh, New Yorker to be the lead pastor and they invited me to join the preaching team as my volunteer activity at the church and the habit we came to was, um, there were three services at the church, there was about a 30 minute break between the first one and an hour break between the second and the third, but between the first and the second um, services, we would huddle after you had greeted people at the church as they were leaving and we would offer each other constructive feedback on the sermon so that you could improve it in the 15 minutes that were left between the first service and the second service. Um, and I think the beautiful thing I loved about it was there was high enough trust and high enough respect that you didn't need to do the normal hand waving. That was great, I was so changed. You Because by the time we were speaking, the second service had already started. You could hear them, the musical worship had begun. And so we would huddle in the corner um, of the lobby, and the feedback could be anything, but the goal was, how do I help my colleague deliver God's word as clearly and as powerfully as possible to serve the congregation? And so sometimes you would gather and say, I have almost nothing. That was beautiful, profound, and faithful to the text, and will help the congregation. Other times, I remember one time I had finished a sermon, and... Pete turned to me and said, "You need to cut the last third because I think your passage frankly, is um, includes basically a second pericope and you're starting a second sermon and they're thematically related because they're from the same text. But really you don't need it. It would be clear if there was just the one. And so um, and then what it takes as a preacher is to say, I trust you because I, I'm not quite objective about my own sermon. So I just cut the third out, went upstairs, got there, um, they were in the last song before the announcements, the announcements they preach i got up and started preaching and dropped the last third what i of course forgot to do was tell the worship team that i was changing the sermon and so they were out in the lobby and as i drew to a close 10 minutes sooner than i had the first service i said let me pray as the worship team comes up and i could hear them scrambling because they weren't really ready and they and so i had to kind of extend the prayer a little bit as i was watching them come back to the front of the church but it all sometimes would also would be I think you misinterpreted that passage. And I, I think you went off on an angle here that I don't think is helpful. And what you had to do because the shortness of time was be able to propose a solution that they could adopt without a lot of work. And so sometimes we, I think if you modified this point to say this, you don't need to change almost the rest of your content, but it would be clearer and truer to the passage. Or another time, um, one of them had used an illustration at the end of the sermon. And I remember saying to them, I think your last illustration completely undercuts the rest of what you were saying. And I said, why? And we talked about it. I said, well, and I won't go through why, but I said, I think the way to fix that would be add this one sentence in. And it depended. Um, I preach from an outline. Uh, Pete, I think, um, has a very a much thinner outline. And Rich manuscripted a little bit more at that point. So you had to know how each other was working. But I think what I loved was three things. One, um, we were submitting both to one another and, but ultimately to the text of scripture. And so egos didn't need to be involved and there was a clear criteria of did it help it be more scripturally truthful but also could we trust each other to submit to one another's critique? Um, And what that meant for us is as the preacher, um, my interpretation of the text nor my delivery of the text is authoritative. And so you had to be humble and say, okay, I... Um, I think it second, it taught us, um, we always have room to grow. Pete had been in ministry. I mean, he was retiring. He'd been preaching for decades. Um, I'd been preaching for decades. Rich had been preaching for decades, but you had to have the humility of, I can always get better and friends will help me do that. And I think the third thing was, um, it helped us not be precious about what we were writing or doing. In the end, the goal wasn't cleverness or I found something new. It was did we communicate faithfully and clearly and that would be better for the congregation. So, it was a it was a marvelous experience. All I wish in retrospect was and we could never organize it. I wish we had had a chance to study the text together before we did started the preaching. So if we knew we were doing a series on acts, I wish we'd said, let's take a day or two together, study the text comprehensively together so that we know how each other how we we have a shared interpretation of what's happening and we can articulate that all better. But the critique experience was fantastic.
1: I mean, yeah. You know, I, I saw, you know, it popped up on Twitter. I think you, you tweeted something about that or a, a photo of the three of you guys like huddled together. Mm. And, and I, it came across my timeline and I thought that is so, that's so beautiful uh, because it, it is a glimpse of A, like a, a healthy team and then B, you know, the idea that essentially the the preacher for the week is not just somebody, you know, sharing their reflections about the text and, and their their interactions with God, but it's almost like a representative of like of the community of faith. Um, to say, look, look, God has said this to us and even like and we we affirm this and we're saying this. It's a it's a beautiful aspect that I think is is sorely lacking in a lot of maybe Western churches or maybe just churches in general, but I I, I thought it was a beautiful thing. well, it it
0: really was. And partially it was the trust. I think partially the dynamic of Pete's an older Italian-American, Rich was Puerto Rican, raised and born in New York. I'm Chinese-American from the Midwest. And having that diversity also helped because there were times that we could say to another, oh, when you said that, by the way, the connotations in another community will read this way. Or, you know, so you had uh, a little bit of the multi-ethnic dynamic in that conversation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like the Church of Antioch, uh, perhaps. Maybe they had some similar discussions. (laughs) Now, Um, it was fantastic. Yeah. No. So you said that, you know, one of your like, not regrets, but you you would have loved to be able to to study in advance together. Mm -hmm. Now now I have another another question, like, why didn't you guys do that on like Saturday night? Or why, why was there like those? And another question I had when I'm hearing about this is like, those poor people in first service, you know, if I knew about this, I would never come to first service. I would always wait uh, to hear the more polished, thoughtful version uh, for second or third service.
0: Yeah. uh, um, I think we didn't do it Saturday night. Probably because it somewhat, it depended on uh, who was done writing their sermons when now I suspect Pete and Rich often had their sermons done sooner. Uh, This was my volunteer activity at church. So frequently I was writing my sermons Saturday (laughs) or Sunday morning, like around midnight. Um, I think also uh, some of it was just logistics. I think the other thing I would say is there's a certain amount of feedback you can get before the week, which certainly people did. There's something else about as you deliver the sermon, particularly for those of us who don't manuscript particularly, um, that when it's live, it, it comes across differently and it reads differently. So sometimes we'd make calls. I'm thinking about this. Does that work? Uh, but it's as it's put together and actually delivered Um, and for any of us who've ever had to preach multiple services i think you have different things that occur so there's a certain freshness with the first one i think the second one was probably the studiest and by the third one energy may have been flagging a little bit and so um but uh, you know rare it was a rare time given everybody's experience that the first one was very off the rails, but occasionally there were some nice tweaks on the second. Of
1: course, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, and, and, and no, no disrespect in that, yeah, yeah. especially realizing too, yeah, the, the time dynamics and also, yeah, that was your voluntary um, uh, service. What So you've given some examples of, of the critiques or, or the tweaks or the changes, you know, it's that in, in certain cultures, that story isn't gonna land very well, or there's this, any other, like I'd love to hear some examples of, of the critique. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I
0: think sometimes um, examples of the critique would be things like um, uh, there was one sermon on um, how do you endure suffering, etc. And I don't remember which one of us was preaching it or even which ones gave this, the feedback. But somebody said, you know, I think we need to say a word um, for particularly spouses who may be in um, emotionally or physically abusive situations. It doesn't need to be a lot, but can we add a slide to say, if you need help, here's a phone number. And just do a hand wave, right? That, And I think we were in a context of family or other things at first, but I remember the context thinking, we need to say something, there's a group here that will hear this the wrong way. And it was helpful to have somebody else raise that. Um, Sometimes it was just, did the illustration was it too complicated?" And sometimes it would be, could we you need to simplify that story?" We got a little bit lost. My young, My oldest daughter often would sit in the service. she hated Sunday school, and so we said, "You can come if you take notes." And so she was probably six, seven, eight, nine-ish in that range. And I would sometimes look at her notes to figure out, could she follow the main points as she was taking notes?" And if she could, then it was probably a pretty good sermon. But if she started getting lost, I thought, okay, there's a little fuzziness there. And so sometimes i can you clarify your outline a little bit as you're speaking? Because we're getting lost in the points. Um, And sometimes it was just exegetical. I I don't think that's how that passage works. And in five minutes, how could we fix that without rewriting the sermon? And thankfully, um, we tried to preach uh, expositionally out of sections of text, not just one or two verses. So the nice thing is even if you may have partially misinterpreted part of it, the rest of the context of the passage keeps everything reasonably in line. So we could just say, I think in that middle section, um, could you nudge the point in this direction because I think it fits the exegetical point better and still accomplishes what the text is trying to do and what you're trying to accomplish in your sermon. So there, in part, because it was ex. Repository preaching, the text provided its own set of control so that nobody ever was way offline. Um, and so, but there, the critiques could be any of those um, as we went.
1: Wow. And I realized, okay, I realized two things. Number one, you're, you're no longer, you know, serving at, at New Life um, Christian mm-hmm. Fellowship. And then also I realized this, this setup was something that you, you sort of walked into. I'm wondering, though, however, do you have any advice for, let's say, the, the solitary preachers out there that, that hear this and think, oh, I'd love that. But how do I how do I go about doing that without coming off as, I don't know, um, narcissistic to say, hey, I want you to tell me about my my sermons and talk to me about how good they were. Um, how, how could somebody get this set up? Do you have any ideas? Yeah. I, I mean, the reality is in
0: every congregation, there are probably some folk there who I'm sure I don't have a seminary education. Who may not have a seminary education, but who love Jesus, have studied the scriptures, um, invite them to talk with you after a Sunday sermon. It doesn't have to be every week, but once a month, two times a quarter. And I think what I would do is um, do two things. One, um, give them a worksheet that they can fill out. Because I think if you ask the average person, what did you think about the sermon? We are inculturated to say it was fantastic, Jesus spoke to me. But it's much more helpful to give them um, a worksheet, and the things I would definitely include would be, how did the Lord speak to you? Because I do think if we encourage people to be critics before their disciples, we're leading them astray, and that's the danger, I think, for all of us who love to do expository preaching. We hear other preachers, and it's so easy to move into critique mode rather than stay as a disciple as I'm listening, which is the most important thing. But how did the Lord meet you? And then walk through, did I cover the passage well? Um, I think the best compliment I've ever gotten out of speaking would be when, um, at another church I was preaching at, somebody came up to me and said, I don't know that you said anything new that I'd never heard before, but I do know if I look at this passage again, I will probably arrive at the same point because you showed me what the text said and I can see how you got there. And I thought, if that's all I do, I'm deeply satisfied. So did I cover the text well? Um, did i illustrate the points in ways that helped you apply the text faithfully would be another great question um or did i fail to illustrate it and i think um you know i think john stott other folk have used you have to put some windows into the building of your exposition so that light can come in and people can see um did i illustrate it appropriately and um and then last and that's right very far last, was my delivery sufficiently engaging that I prevent that I prevented you from drifting off but if you cover did I cover the fa- text faithfully did I illustrate it? Probably also was the application clear and relevant to the people in the pew or to you right if you do this with a group and then um was delivery and I always make delivery last because in the end, fantastic delivery um will bamboozle people who aren't thinking about the content, but that's not what I'm there to to do. I'm not there to impress or delight people. If they understand the, the scriptures and can apply it, I've succeeded. If I can make it engaging, then I've made it easier. But I would much rather listen to an unengaging preacher who faithfully taught the word than somebody who is fantastically engaging. And in the end, I walked away with thinking, what an amazing personality, rather than what an amazing God.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, thank you for putting the thought even into those, those categories, uh, because I, I think that when it comes to to feedback or critique, you know a, a lot of like Christian traditions would have you know the sermon as this like uncriticable presentation of of God's word and I, I, and you said this earlier, I'm not going to get you I'm not going to quote you right, but you said you know my my like interpretation can be like fallible or my my presentation can be fallible, but but the Word of God isn't. And if they're kind of like sloppily mixed together, um, mm-hmm. some people might get the impression that to critique the sermon is to critique God's word. Um, yeah. And that's, unvalu- that's really, it's can get in the way of growth for the teacher and preacher and then the future blessing of the whole congregation.
0: Well, absolutely. And in the end, it's less that I want to undermine the authority of the preacher. I more want to raise the expectation of the parishioner person in the pew who could say, I too can study the scriptures. I too could lead a Bible study. I too could share from this text that I heard the other day, because I understood what it said and I understood uh, what it meant, and I could share that myself. In the end, um, I would—I, you know—it's—it's it's one of the reasons I try to avoid, you know, saying, "Oh, this word in the Greek really means this," because, uh, or—and I try not to disagree with translations or make that an issue. Because in the end, I think what happens is you actually undermine people's confidence in the text they have before them. Um, hundred percent. I've been
1: waiting for somebody to say that. Yeah.
0: The the people who translated almost any, all of the English versions we have, have studied the Hebrew and the Greek and the Aramaic far more than I ever will. I'm just going to trust them. If I need to, I might say, oh, there's a nuance here. But every time I do that, what I'm communicating to the person in the pew is, you shouldn't really study scripture yourself because you'll never get it. It's only those of us who've done a lot of study. And um, I think that's doctrinally untrue. And unhelpful, in the end, I
1: want them to go, oh, I'd love to study that myself. Yeah. Yeah, it's so unhelpful when someone says, you know, you know what this actually means is this. And and I'm here to mm-hmm. to, to give you this gnosis, this secret knowledge. And, and you need me to take you by the hands, you know, and I will teach you this. And essentially, you can't really trust the Bible. You got to trust me. You need me to unlock it for you. Very unhelpful, very. Absolutely. And I want
0: to say is um, new... Uh, Students, new seminarians are particularly prone to this. And so if you're a new seminarian, I think the goal is, uh, I want you to be learned. I would love for you to do the study. Um, I don't need to be impressed by your study. I need to be impressed by your fidelity to the word
1: and your submission to it. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Okay, wow. Uh, So... Well, here's here's what we do at at my own church at Calvary Cork. Um, We we only have you know one service, and um, so there's not that opportunity. But you know like I can I could gather together with some trusted people afterwards and hear everything I did wrong, and then it's a learning experience. But so I I finish my sermon on a usual week or let's say back in 2019 when you know pre-COVID. Presently, we're actually only meeting online um, because of the restrictions here in Ireland. Um, So it's it's different. However back when things were regular on Thursday, I'd have my sermon done and I try to do a manuscript or, or, or close Mm -hmm. to it. I put it in Google docs and then it gets Mm -hmm. emailed to a variety of leaders within the church. And, um, and they have a look at it. Um, some comment, some don't, in fact, I'd say most don't, Mm -hmm. uh, but our, our women's ministry director, uh, Jodi every single week, um, she's got something, something great to say. Um, you know, even, even, there was one even illustration that I I gave about, about me being a good dad, you know, telling a story where like, I really got it right. And I, it was valuable to talk with her back and forth. Like, how does this come across to to families where maybe the dad isn't doing something good, or does this come off as like self-aggrandizing? Am I, you know, you know, she pointed out that I have plenty of stories about me messing up. (laughs) And so (laughs) to have an example of me doing something good Every three or four months is probably a valuable thing. So it's it's, it's it's good to hear those types of things. That sounds like the kind of conversations that you got to have in between services. It, it very much was. And I love what you're modeling by that, Mike, right? It's the, I prepped
0: early and um, because I took my um, preaching test seriously, I'm inviting my community to respond. And I love the fact that it's the women's ministry director who's faithful feedback because I think often in traditions where if you belong to a tradition where women are not in the pulpit frequently or at all, it's vital that we get that kind of feedback so that we're pastoring the women with as much skill and knowledge as we are men. And for those of us then who belong in traditions where uh, both men and women are exposing, I think it's crucial that we sit uh, and listen to uh the women who are exposing, because I think we learned so much both about how they're approaching the scriptures, but particularly how that um, interpretation of what the scriptures were trying to say is then applied. And I, I'm a much better preacher and much better disciple for that experience.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks, Greg, for yeah, carefully threading the needle and, and saying that. Um, yeah, yeah, personally, like I, I am a complementarian. And so, but however... I believe too, like I need to be learning from, from women. And then even hearing how these things sound in, in, in their ears. And so, uh, yeah, I, I think this is like totally consistent and wonderful. I think that, you know, even the, the, the strictest of complementarians of which I'm not the strictest need to include something <laughs> like that to know how is this coming across to the other half of your congregation? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, okay, so here here is um, uh, maybe a hard pivot onto onto the next topic. I wish sure. I had a, a clever transition to move from one point <laughs> to to the next. Uh, but but Greg, you you talked about like your first summer was in the eighties, and then all of a sudden now now we're here. Um, yeah. I I know that a lot's happened since the mid eighties up until twenty twenty one. You you became an attorney, and you were you were a, we we say a solicitor here in Ireland. Yes. You were a lawyer. Um, how has how that factored into like to your life, your even communication abilities, and your, your teaching and preaching?
0: That's such a great question. I think um, it's probably had three impacts. Um, it renewed and deepened my appreciation for studying a text and studying a text carefully. Uh, and so regardless of the kind of solicitor or attorney that you are, um, you're always attentive to the text and what the text is saying and not saying and why it says it the way it does. So I think it helped me do my exegetical work um, carefully. I think being an attorney uh, also made me attentive to why is something said or unsaid. Maybe that's the same thing as the other. Um, I think the broader piece might be: um, what's the argument? Or what's the reason the biblical authors wrote what they did? And while you're always in hazy ground trying to assume you know why they put it together, I always assume people are logical and are trying to communicate something. So um, it's asking the bigger picture questions. So, for example, as you read Romans... Um, it's being attentive to the context that while we often think about it in the Protestant tradition as justification by faith, a long argument for that, the larger context for Paul was, can Jewish and Gentile Christians worship together, and can um, is there a place for that kind of diversity, and how will we find unity? Well, if you read Romans with that light, not just through the lens of what the Reformation was asking, um, suddenly um, it speaks to a, a much broader set of issues uh, than a theological battle that was um, first defined in the 1500s, right? Um, I think the third thing, you know, I, I wasn't much of a litigator. And so I don't think it changed my delivery that much. But it did make me very attentive to, is this clear? Is this going to communicate and convince? And so the um, that part of the preaching task of I actually intend to win you over to a biblical imagination and set of commitments. And how do I set the stage for doing that? Well, I think has been part of how my law training helped.
1: Now, now for someone who has never been a lawyer and, you know, never, never will be, are there any, I don't know, how can you help us to be a little more clear in our, in our thinking? Maybe it's far too broad of a question, but what helps you to be a clear thinker essentially is the question.
0: I hope I am. So uh, at least I would aspire to, uh, regardless of how you end up presenting, whether you've memorized, you have a manuscript, um, I do think outlining either before or after is really crucial because it provides a little bit of a a scaffolding on which to make sure you don't rabbit trail. I think part of what you learn, and I think we all instinctively know this, is um, I have to help people connect both The intellectual, logical argument the passage has made, whether it's a narrative or an epistle, as well as um, create the emotional plausibility to take that position, which may be difficult. Because if scripture is challenging our idolatries on a frequent basis, then you have to create the emotional willingness to say, I will adopt this new way of thinking. And so that's where I think illustrations then become Powerful and then potentially manipulative, and you have to be very attentive to the difference. But if I tell a story well, so that somebody says, Ah, I see how that and why that person made that decision, and I identify with them deeply enough that I could imagine making that decision too. You've connected them the logical argument the scripture is making, the invitation with the emotional. I could also say yes. And I think being some of us, um, only do one and some of us only do the other and the goals to hold those two things at the same
1: time. Ah, oh, man, Greg, thanks. You know, you use that phrase, you know, winning people over and, and, and here, that kind of makes me think of another, another question you were spe- um, from, from me, like, you know, watching some of your sermons and then even aware of your your work with Varsity. I know that like <coughs> conversions are, mm-hmm. are important to you or evangel, you know, conversion is kind of an old fashioned uh, word, but like, how um, can you maybe speak to the teachers and preachers? Like, how can you grow as a teacher and preacher to not just be an educator, but actually calling for a commitment? I've heard you say elsewhere that, you know, you've, you've increased or, or focused on the invitational aspects of preaching. Yeah, I
0: think this is crucial. Um, I think the reality, for those of us who preach to mostly church crowds, the reality is um, people are so surfeited with biblical knowledge, but so malnourished in being taught how to apply it and put it into practice or how it should change them, that I've often said um, for many Christians, if they would just apply what they already knew, even if they read nothing new, it would probably be better for everybody. So I think... um, A different way to put that might be, I'm convinced every time I um, stand at the pulpit that the Holy Spirit desires to make an invitation for people to either um, renounce an idolatry that they have or to renew their commitment to grow in Christlikeness, or to participate in the mission that God is already about in the world. And that um, my role, right, as one of the great words for the preaching task is being a herald of what God is doing. And um, it's what Paul says, right, that we are ambassadors of this message of reconciliation. And so I want to invite people at every opportunity, uh, every week to make a decision to um, mind or their body, their soul or their strength somehow make a choice to follow Jesus at that moment. And I think that's why then the difference between calling people um, to that discipleship decision and calling Non-Christians to evangelistic decision is not that different. All of them are being invited to turn their lives to Jesus and we aren't signal, you know um, spotlighting all oh, the non-Christians need apply here. In fact, my colleague Ellen Wakabayashi, as he was thinking about how to help at that point it was kind of uh, young millennials come to faith, he said they don't want to do this alone. they need to join a community. Um, as part of this, and so what he would do when he would preach, particularly evangelistically oriented sermons, is always direct the first step of application to the not to the Christians in the room, and said, "You know, we've been talking about following Jesus. Whatever the topic was, if you're willing to give yourself to follow Jesus now, right? As a follower of Jesus, you're saying today, I am renewing my commitment. Would you stand right now?" And then he would make the evangelistic invitation. I'm inviting those of you who have not stood because you are not yet followers of Jesus. Would you commit your life to Jesus, appropriate you know, gospel explanation, and join this community of people who've already said yes today? And I don't think it was manipulative, but it was actually saying, we never do this alone. You're joining the company of the people of God in saying yes to Jesus. And I think for the non-Christians in the room, it was, I'm not weird, I'm not doing this alone. I'm joining this community of people I respect already, that I know already, who've said yes, I can and it, right, it's the emotional and intellectual plausibility which allowed them, I think, then to be receptive to the Holy Spirit saying, you, I'm talking to you right now, you should stand. And then they would join this community that was already standing and praying. And I, I think it was lovely, and it's something that I've done since then, because I think it's also theologically correct. Um, it's not an individual making a decision to follow Jesus. They're joining a great company of people.
1: Okay. And that's that, that's beautiful. i'm I'm glad that I went off script to to ask because that's a that's yeah, wonderful. there's I think there's probably manipulative ways of doing that. yeah, and and I think even some evangelistic um, organizations came under under scrutiny, under fire a couple of years ago. Maybe I won't get into the details, but you know, um, where, where certain people were almost planted in the congregation yeah. and they would, they would begin streaming forward to, to allow people to get caught up in the momentum of it all. And that yeah. doesn't sound like what's, what you're advocating or, or what your colleague was, was talking about clearly no. saying, you know, <clears throat> Christians, you want to take the Lord seriously, right? Let's, yeah. let's express that. And then yeah. people who are not Christians yet are invited to begin that journey along with their perhaps new brothers and sisters.
0: Yeah, I, absolutely. And, I would, I know in my, the context I've done, I've never asked somebody could you be the first person to stand to help everyone? I think that's where it turns manipulative. And I think it's okay to make an invitation and nobody responds. That, and the great fear, I'm not a natural I hope so, because I've, I've done it. <laughs> right? but it's so yeah. important, I think for our own integrity to say, um, nobody responded. I'm going to trust if I prepared and had prayerfully prepared my sermon um, the Holy Spirit, for whatever reason, did not create the response that I wanted. And I think that's the challenge. It's the response I wanted. And so at some point saying, you know what? Nobody responded. I'm going to trust I was as faithful as I could. Let me go back and reflect if I could have done that better or differently. But this is not about me. It's not about my ego in the preaching. I made my faithful invitation. If hearts were hardened, um, then I'm going to invite people. Will you intercede more the next time?
1: hmm mm. Wow. Okay. I'm, I'm aware of the time, uh, time for maybe, maybe only one question left. I have, I have two, uh, you, I've sent you the questions in advance. Which one do you want to talk about? <laughs> do you want to talk about your weekly rhythm or do you want to talk about things that you're trying to improve in and grow in? Uh, why don't
0: we do the second? Because I don't preach weekly at this point. Um, so I don't, there's no, and nobody should emulate my own preaching rhythm at this point because I'm squeezing it in as a volunteer. Um, the things that I'm trying to grow at at this stage, um, would be, one, um, uh, I'm still wrestling all the time with, um, how do I faithfully remain grounded in the text in my preaching so that it's the text, which is centered and not my, not my delivery of it or my own interesting thoughts. And, After 40 years, the temptation is always, oh, I have this great thought, and it's not about my great thought. Um, But how do I remain grounded in the text? I think a thing I'm always working on is um, uh, fighting the need to be novel, creative, um, or delightful. That I, got, you know, when I'm preaching in church, I so desperately want people to go. Oh, I had never seen that before, and that that is such a terrible temptation for me because I would like to be clever, and the goal is to be faithful. And so, if it's just you've heard this passage before, I doubt I will say anything new. I hope I apply it in uh, different ways for you. But um, I think the third thing I'm working on is um, something that we've been touching on during the course of this podcast. Um, how do I listen more attentively to? Um, majority world expositors um, to women and to other folk because I'm so aware of um, the ways that my default interpretation of the text reflect what it means for me as a now middle-aged Chinese American privileged person in North America. And um, when I've pulled out, you know, my African Bible commentary or some of the stuff that Langham Publishing is doing in Asia and Africa with, uh, commentary series written by brothers and sisters in the majority world. They're equally committed to hearing what the, um, the biblical writer had to say. But it's clear the questions they're coming to the text with are different than the questions I've come to it with. And they're unlocking things that I would not have seen. And if I want to actually teach what the text is saying, I probably need mul- I need that multi-perspectival way of approaching the text so that we zero in on what we go, this is where the heart of the text is. But then it also helps me the application to be a little bit more generous and broader and to make sure I'm asking the right questions. So it's probably those things. It's always a rest, It's always an issue of how do I stay grounded in the text? How do I manage my own need and my own ego needs for affirmation or to be creative, clever, or smart? And then um, how could I do a better job listening um, to the voices that don't write have not so far published many of the commentaries, Um, people of color, global voices, women, so that um, it's the whole community of God coming together to study the text and that I'm um, listening to the way that the community of saints across time and space have said, this is what we've heard in the scriptures together. Um, And I think in the end, that will be a blessing to the people I preach to.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, that's funny. This really has come full circle because the, the, the thing that caused me to reach out to you is, you know, a picture of, of, you know, three different types of people huddled together, kind of around God's word and trying to communicate it more clearly. And and then now towards the end, you're speaking about how you want to even increase that even more so um, to not just be learning from the Italian American, the, um, uh, the other, American, yeah, <laughs> and, and yeah, but like, yeah, there's there's it's more. It's not just like what sort of Americans are living in New York at the moment, but mm-hmm. what is what's happening, you know, across God's, God's, God's Earth, and you know, you're speaking about the contemporary, and then also is is the ancient as well too, um, yes. You know, what, what have, what have the, the church fathers and mothers um, taught us? You know, what, what did 5th century Turkish Christians have to say on, on this passage as well? And all of these, I think, together. And I, I've quoted this in the past, actually, a couple of episodes. It's first time you've heard it, but I'm sure a lot of people are. Gonna, but, you know, Ephesians speaks about, you know, to, um, his, his, Paul's prayer for us is that together with all the saints, we'd be able to grasp the height, depth, breadth, and width of, of the love of Christ. And I think that it does take all the saints to see it you know, like you experience it in one way and I experience it another. And together as we converse, I mm-hmm. think we get a little closer to it.
0: Yes, and the key thing to say here would be, I know some people then go, oh, isn't that just relativism writ large in our cultural context? And I think the key thing is we're all submitting to scripture, but we are all saying, um, we're looking at the same scripture from several different vantage points. Let's zero in together on what this text is saying, and that if the text says it, then we will all submit to it, but um, sometimes we approach the text from different place. One of the ways I used to teach the difference between interpretation and application, or what's the text's meaning versus um, what are its implications, is often how we would teach it in InterVarsity. Um, if you, at least in the United States, if you look at a stop sign, um, it clearly, the, the meaning is stop, but the implications change depending on which direction you're driving toward the sign at. If you're Facing it, it means you should stop, but if it's to your right on the other street that's perpendicular to you, um, you don't need to stop. Now, you might be wise to slow down in case the other car doesn't, but the implication is the other car will stop, you can go forward. Same meaning, different implications based on where you're coming to it from. The meaning of the text is clear, it's what the authors intended, but the implications for the audience will be determined somewhat by where they're coming to the text from, and that's what you want to explore. I think, as you engage with the text.
1: Wow. Man, I, I, I love that. Um, you, you mentioned the, uh, that Langham is publishing like majority world theologians. Um, could you give us the title of that? Is that already out or is that in, in process? Um, <clears throat> uh, Langham Partnership, which was uh, the ministry founded by John Stott
0: and continued since uh, his passing, has a publishing division called Langham Publishing, and you can find it online. They have a, several series going. So they have a number of um, one-volume Bible commentaries, uh, the African Bible Commentary, the Latin American Bible Commentary, Eastern European. So in all of those, they're trying to work through the implications, particularly in these one-volume vol- Bible commentaries. They're fantastic. Uh, and they've been published by other publishers in various countries. And then there are several, there's at least two series. I think there's an Asia um, commentary on scripture that's going through at least the Old, maybe the New Testament, Um and organized by uh, believers in the Philippines, uh, and then drawing on um, Asia, and then I believe there's another Bible commentary series, but I can't remember its location. Okay, uh, we'll, we'll definitely we we'll
1: find it. Yeah, we'll put them all in the in the show notes for for this episode. Uh, there, I, I keep looking. I have the the Africa Study Bible, but that's yes. that's different. That's I think that's that's Tyndale. Um, but that'd be um, we, I've I've enjoyed. I've been learning from even this contemporary um, African Bible commentaries, uh, as well. Uh, so yeah, we want to, want to broaden and there's, it's a, it's a valuable thing to, to hear what our brothers and sisters have said and are saying, and yeah, looking into God's word together. Um, so yeah, for my I- Irish context, for, for your Chicago context or Chicago suburbs context, um, God's word has something to say to all of us. Um, let's just see how it's hitting and reflecting off of different people's lived experience.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, and I think some of the um, hard to tackle issues um, are seen differently in different contexts. So I often point out to people, the problem of pain is um, wrestled with in a particular way in affluent Western contexts. Why does God allow this to happen? And in majority world contexts, they're not asking that question in quite the same way, because it's so pervasive and such a normal part of
1: life. Um, they have different kinds of answers and questions um, that we need to learn from. Yeah. And that which troubles us, yeah, it doesn't couple them and, and even vice versa. So absolutely. Yeah. Well, excellent. Well, Greg, thank you so very much. This has been, this has been really delightful. I think you've really given the listeners uh, loads to, to chew on. I would love if from this people began to initiate these type of like feedback systems to to find colleagues to to help them that'd be a wonderful takeaway from this Um, you know obviously if people bought things from inner varsity then that'd be even greater (laughs) Um, but yeah that though i'm 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 gonna go order uh some of those langham publisher things that's i i love that kind of thing that deserves a spot on my uh, bookshelf definitely well, excellent. I hope that this podcast and all that we do at the Expositors Collective helps you to grow in your personal study and public proclamation of God's word. Uh, thanks again, Greg. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you so much once again to Greg. Uh, I, I have a feeling that some of you are probably already scrambling to rewind this to be able to listen to certain parts all over again. Um But hey, here's what I want you to do while you're still listening. I want to make sure that you're already subscribed to this podcast. And and here's why. Uh, Because in just a few days, uh, there's a bonus episode uh, coming out with uh, myself and Pilgrim Benham talking about guest speaking, uh, the best practices, best etiquette when you are not the main pastor, but when you're invited to speak at somebody else's church. And then afterwards for the month of April, it's like an all-star lineup. Uh, there is uh, Dustin Benge, Andreas Kostenberger, John Stark, Tabidi Angwabile, all of these are are coming up, they're scheduled, and you got to make sure that you're subscribed so that you don't miss one of those. Each of those conversations is really going to personally enrich you, I promise, or your money back. And not just you personally, but the ministries that you lead, the congregations that you teach, they're going to be better off because you've subscribed, And listened to Dustin, Andreas, John, Tabiti. It's definitely an investment into your ministry. So, anyway, thanks so much for sticking around. I do hope that this episode and all that we do here at the Expositors Collective helps you to grow in your personal study and your public proclamation of God's Word.